right, First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses 9 through chapter 2, verse 2. This is going to be the second half of the message that we started last week. Uh, remember verses 1 through 4, John is reminding them uh, that Jesus is real. Right? Jesus had an actual physical body. Of course, he was 100% God, but he's also 100% human. And it's this real Jesus that we're talking about here in verses 8 through, you know, chapter 1, verse 8, to chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, this real Jesus provides fellowship with God the Father. Uh, what we looked at last week was the basis for the fellowship that Jesus provides. That was in verse 5. And that's that God is light. Right? He, is, he is very light himself. And we are placed in and walk in that light once we have come to Jesus to be saved. Now, we looked at uh, some hindrances to this fellowship uh, in uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, well, verses 6 to 10, really, it, it concerns our attitude, our um, honesty about our sin. See, denial of sin means that we walk in darkness, separated from God. We're, we're partitioned from the truth. Now, verses 6 and 7, we dealt with the denial of the reality of the sin. Okay, if we deny the reality of sin, that hinders our fellowship with God. Verse 6 told us, basically, that talk is cheap. What we do is what determines who we are. If we walk in darkness, it doesn't matter how loudly we shout that we're in the light, we're still in the darkness. Okay, what we say is not so important when compared to what we do. Now, verse 7 stated that being in the light, being saved, having fellowship with the Father, assures that once we have been forgiven, that forgiveness never ceases. Now, we got about halfway through the next, uh, next portion, verses 8 and 9. Verses 6 and 7 dealt with the denial of the reality of sin, hindering fellowship. Verses 8 and 9 deal with the denial of the principle of sin and how it hinders fellowship. Verse 8 deals with the sin nature that is still present in us. If we say that once saved, never sinning, then we've lied to ourselves. We're disconnected from the truth. God's word may be in our heads, but it hasn't changed the way we thought. It's not moved into our hearts. Now we get into verse 9. So let's pick it up. Verse 9, we'll read down to chapter 2, verse 2. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things are right unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, now John instructs his, his saints here what to do about the sin in their lives. And, and he uses the word we, which includes John. So he is speaking of believers. He's speaking of those who have a relationship with Christ. Now, in other places, he'll give directions to the unsaved as to what to do about their sinful state and their sin. But right now, he's dealing with us. See, the sinner is to believe. John 3.16. 
right? You believe on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Um, God uh, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Uh, I kind of mixed a Romans passage and a John 3 passage there. Caught that. Sinners are to believe, right? That establishes their fellowship and it establishes their joy. The saint is to confess in order to maintain that fellowship and that joy. Believing brings salvation. Confession is a result of salvation. And the word confess is from a Greek word. We need to go over this. Homologio, which, which is from hamos, which means the same. You think of homogenized milk. It's all mixed up. The cream doesn't separate, right? And lego, not the ones you step on in the morning when your kids leave them out. Uh, but lego means to say. So to confess is to say the same thing. To agree with somebody. So confession of sin on the part of the believer means to say the same thing that God says about your sin. <clears throat> to agree with God as to its implication of that sin as it relates to you who commits it and against God whom it was committed against. Now that includes your hatred of sin. Your sense of guilt because of it that contrition of heart because of your sin, and that determination to put it away from your life and never do that thing again, that is what confession in 1 John 1.9 means. And the plural, look at it, if we confess our sins, right, the plural is important. We confess specific sins, not simply that we sin, oh God, I sinned today. No, no, it's, it's specific sins. As the light you're walking in exposes your sins that you're committing, you confess those particular sins. You name them specifically, and you repent of them, and you leave them behind. This confessing, this agreeing with God about your sin, it's not a process. It's a single act here, because these are singular sins. In chapter 1, verse 7, we, we have what's called a durative action. It means that, we, that, that, that Jesus keeps on continually cleansing. Uh, it refers to the constant cleansing of the believer from the defilement of sin because of, of ignorance. Um, 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 maybe Satan has done something. Maybe you just got weak in the flesh. But, but these are common uh, because we just don't know about them unless Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, brings them to mind. But in John, 1 John 1, 9, these aren't common. These aren't habitual. If you knowingly sin habitually, you're walking in darkness. You're not a child of God. No child of God knowingly sins habitually. These sins are that, that we're confessing are, are infrequent. They're, they're isolated instances uh, in a well-ordered believer's life. Each Christian is responsible. We are responsible to acknowledge whatever his light makes aware. And he says when we do that, perfect cleansing is granted to us. See, confessing is not a process, but it is a continuous action. It teaches us that the constant attitude of you toward your sin should be one of a contrite heart. 
When you sin against God, it should break your heart. You should always be eager to have any sin in your life discovered, pointed out by the Holy Spirit, and always eager to confess it and put it out of your life by the power of that same Holy Spirit that showed it to you. Psalm 51, verse 17, David wrote concerning that kind of heart when he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. See, the confession is not just a a mere outward agreement, but it includes the forsaking of that sin because that's God's attitude towards us and that sin. Confession is towards God and in view of verse 8, Christians ought to be ready at all times to acknowledge any time the Holy Spirit convicts you of a sin. It says that he is faithful and just, or we could say faithful and righteous. The two words kind of imply each other. God, who is absolute rightness, must be faithful to his own nature. He must forgive us because that is who he is. He must be faithful to himself and to the promises he's made to mankind. Forgiveness is, is absolution from sin's punishment. But the cleansing is absolution from from the pollution that comes from sin. When we stay broken over our sins, confessing them to the Father, He is faithful, He is righteous when He forgives us and cleanses us. It's already evident from verse 7 of chapter 1, a Christian's fellowship with God, is inseparably connected to the effectiveness of the blood that Jesus shed. That's how inseparable your fellowship with God is. And 1 John 1, 9 is not spoken to unsaved believers, and it twists and, 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 and distorts salvation, uh, or, or the, the verse to try to make it fit a, 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 a salvation context. What's considered here in 1 John 1, 9 can be described as um, family forgiveness. Think of it this way. It's perfectly understandable how a son may need to ask his father to forgive him for something that he has done, while at the same time, his position in the family is not in danger. Right? If you are saved and you sin, you will, that, 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 that sin will not unsave you but it will hurt your relationship with your heavenly father. The forgiveness spoken of here has to do not primarily with breaking God's law because that was taken care of on the cross. And it's recognized as that, uh, that the very moment you place your faith in Christ. So sin in your life is a matter not between the lawbreaker and the judge but it's between a child and his father. And what a precious difference that is. For those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, we never have to face God as a judge any longer. It's a matter of a grieving father's heart when a child of God sins. 
The putting away of the believer's sin when they confess is a forgiveness granted by the Father and it's a restoration to the fellowship that that sin uh, uh, broke. When the Christian confesses immediately after the the, the commission of the sin, the fellowship isn't, isn't broken except for that very brief time between the committing and the confessing. See, not only does God forgive you, but he cleanses you from the defilement that you incurred when you committed the sin. And, and the verb to cleanse, again, is a single act. You look at it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That's a single act because the sin was a single act. Again, because known sin in the life of the saint is not habitual. It's, it's out of the ordinary. You commit a sin, the Holy Spirit convicts you, you confess that sin, and you are cleansed from the pollution of that sin, and fellowship with the Father is restored. Now look at verse 10. Another hindrance to our fellowship with God is the denial of the practice of sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You know, of All of God's dealings with people rest on the basis that they are sinners in need of salvation. Fellowship depends on responding to to the standard of God's word, the the light, the realization of our sinful nature that, that we still have. See, the victorious Christian life is a life of no unconfessed sin. If you have unconfessed sin, you cannot have a victorious Christian life. Genuine confession includes the forsaking of that sin, the repenting of it, the turning your back on it, and that produces growth. He says, if we have not sinned, it refers to the act of sin. Okay, if we say that we don't sin... See, verse 8, we have the denial of the indwelling sin nature. Verse 10, we have the denial, it's like, well, I don't sin anymore. No, that, that's what verse 10 is talking about. The denial is, is, is it, it's, it's sinless perfection with a vengeance. And, and this is part of what John was, was, was trying to get them to, to understand about the Gnostics and their false teaching uh, that, 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 no, yes, you've trusted Jesus to save you and, and the power of sin is broken, but you're still stuck in your flesh. You've got this, the, the, this, this body that still wants to sin and, and you are going to commit individual sins and to say that you're not is to call God a liar. There's a, there's a gradation here. In verse 6, it says we lie. In verse 8, we deceive ourselves. And worst of all, in verse 10, we're calling God a liar by denying what he says about everyone, and including us, that we sin. You, know, you can admit the truths of verse 8 and 9 and uh, kind of be all abstract about it, but never really admit to being personally involved in sin. As if saying it long enough might make it true. You know, like when you hear somebody say something and you know you heard them say something and they repeatedly tell you, I never said that. I never said that. Yeah, it's like, I don't sin. I don't sin. No, I don't sin. As if they're trying to convince themselves. When a Christian is confronted by God's word about his sin, we should admit them rather than deny them. 
to deny our personal sin in the face of God's testimony to the contrary is to make God out to be a liar. By contradicting God's word, it means you reject it and you refuse to give it its proper place. You know, often when we're dealing with people, we're trying to lead to faith in Christ and they'll come up with all the excuses that sinners come up with and we'll, we'll lay it out. Well, you say this, but God's word says this and they don't match. So where do you think the problem is? Well, it's with them. It's not with God's word. So if God says that we still commit sins and we say we don't sin anymore, where do you think the problem is? Now, how do we maintain fellowship with the Father? Sin breaks that fellowship. Um, I mean, we were lost in sin. Jesus rescued us, and now we're saved, but we still commit sins. How is fellowship with God even possible if we still commit sins? I'm glad you asked that, or I wouldn't be able to go further with the message. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 shows us that Jesus provides a maintenance for the fellowship that he provides. And he does that by advocating for us. And this is going to be precious. Look at verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things are right unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is their propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some of John's readers might have thought that his insistence on the sinfulness of Christians, somehow would discourage them from pursuing holiness. I mean, the statements in verse 8 and verse 10 about the believer's sinful tendencies, they should not discourage, or I'm sorry, encourage sin. They should not discourage us from pursuing holiness, but, but they would help us guard against it. See, John, John foresees a possibility of, of what he said so far being perverted in, in two ways. Uh, the first way is that, well, if we can never in this life be done with sin, then why strive for holiness, right? If we're always going to be stuck with sin, sin's an abiding necessity, what's the point of even trying? So why try not to sin? I'm always stuck with it, right? Well, the second one is, well, if escape from sin is so easy, if all I have to do is confess and it's taken care of, then why worry about sinning? I mean, we can sin, not worry about it, you know, since the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, right? Well, no, John says. He says, I'm not writing these things to you so that you can be discouraged in your pursuit of holiness. I'm not writing these things so you can be emboldened just to forget about your sin, but I'm writing this to you so you sin not. And built into that is the presupposition that you have the ability to sin not. You have the capacity not to sin. Assurance of forgiveness of sins, verse 9. And the statement that sin is universal in verse 8 and 10 might lead some people to take this light view of sin and John shows that the standard of conduct and the nature for the remedy of sin, uh, he, he shows them this so that they do not sin. He says, my purpose in writing what I've written so far is not that you should abuse it. We're not giving you a license to sin. 
On the contrary, we're writing this so that you do not sin. And the verb tense implies the absence of not just the habit of sin, but those individual punctiliar sins that verse 9 talks about. See, in order to walk in the light, the, the first step is, is confession, agreeing with God. That's verse 9. And the next is that we forsake our sin. See, God's purpose has for his aim either the prevention of the commission of sins or the destroying of sins in us. The verb tense here, it, it, it can't mean that you continue not, but it's that you sin not at all. Now, John understands that this isn't going to be completely true until we get to heaven. It should always be our aim to sin as little as possible, to say no to sin as, uh, and no to sin and no to sin. We can always be closer to the Father than we are right now, and we must always be pressing into, moving towards him. And the closer we get to him, the brighter his light shines in our life, and the more sin is exposed that we can confess and forsake and move even closer to him. John did not want his readers to sin, but he knew that none of them were perfect yet, and all of them would need help, and they would need help from their advocate. And he says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. While still loathing, one commentary says, and condemning uh, Do not fear to go at once to God the Father, confessing it because we have an advocate with him. See, he's speaking speaking of believers and their occasional sin. Remember, Satan still attacks us and and he is full of, of, of anger and hatred and malice towards us. And the weakness of our own flesh towards spiritual things gives us still this propensity to sin. And sin causes alienation between us and God. It's the guilt of sin that separated man from his creator in the beginning. And the Lord on the cross assumed that guilt. He paid the penalty in his own blood. He removed the cause of the alienation. And now a holy and righteous God can bestow mercy on a believing sinner on the basis that his justice has been satisfied. See, our Lord provided a satisfaction for the demands of the broken law, the law that you broke. If any man sin, it's not not habitual action, but if any man commit sin, maybe a better translation, if any man commit an act of sin. See, John regards sin in the believer's life not as something habitual, but something extraordinary. Sin in the believer's life ought to be infrequent. Sin in the believer's life ought to be weird, out of the ordinary, out of place. He says, if that should happen, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate with the Father. And that word with means facing the Father. Our advocate, Jesus Christ, is always in fellowship with the Father so that... When we lose fellowship with him because of, of sin, uh, he, he can plead our cause on the basis of his precious blood and bring us back into fellowship with him. 
See, the word facing brings some intense thought when, 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 when we saints sin. Jesus must face the Father with us in our sin. The saint that's been saved by his precious blood so that he can be able to keep from sinning. And when he does sin, he wounds the tender heart of his Savior. And he forces him to face God the Father with that saint whom he has saved in his precious blood. Jesus stands with you when you confess your sin. And that should deter us. That should hinder us from being casual about our sin. Jesus never doesn't stand with you. He faces the Father with you and your sin, so you never have to face the Father alone. Every time you commit a sin, he is there with you as you confess it, and his Holy Spirit empowers you to forsake it. He, he maintains the very fellowship with the Father himself that he himself enabled you to have. We have an advocate with the Father. See, advocacy is a family blessing. It's only for the saved. Other blessings he grants to the good and bad alike, but justification, sanctification, continued intercession, peace, he only grants to his children, only and alone. The word advocate is parakletos, one who's called along your side. Here the context means one who undertakes and one who champions your cause. See, our, our advocate Jesus does not plead that we are innocent. He doesn't plead that there were some extenuating circumstances. He doesn't stand before the Father and make excuses for your sin. He acknowledges our guilt and presents his work on the cross. He presents his shed blood as the grounds for our acquittal. Jesus is the intercessor for us in heaven above, but in his absence, the Holy Spirit here is the intercessor in us. See, Christ's advocacy is inseparable from the Holy Spirit's working in us. You see, sin, again, sin disrupts fellowship. Sin destroys your joy. And God wants you to have fellowship. He wants you to have joy. That's why he tells us over and over and over again that sin... And vital Christianity, they're incompatible. But while Christians do not live in sin, we're never in this life going to become sinless. But the closer we come to God, the more sensitive our consciences become, the more we realize that we are indeed sinners. And there's a paradoxical consequence here. That we come to appreciate the fact that our, our sinful state, in our sinful state, we are unworthy to approach a great and holy God. We need help. We desperately need help. And John assures us that we have the help. We have the help we need. When we sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. 
It is his righteousness, his obedience to the law, the endurance of the full penalty for us that he grounds that claim for acquittal in. We're acquitted because he paid the price for our sin. That full cup of God's wrath against our sin was poured out on him so he could stand with you and so he could acquit you of that sin. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is your advocate. He pleads for us on the ground of justice or, or righteousness and mercy because he is righteous. He can plead with the righteous father. See, there's no reason to think that, that, that Christ has to ask God to, to keep a Christian from going to hell as a result of their sin. Eternal life was fully guaranteed and granted the moment that you trusted Jesus to save you. But the consequences of your failure, uh, your restoration, uh, your future usefulness are very urgent matters that Jesus takes up when, with, with his Father when you commit a sin. Look at verse 2. It says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, well, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It means he is the satisfaction. See, the point is that the Old Testament priest, when they offered the animal sacrifices, offered the sacrifices, but did not offer himself. Here, our New Testament priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, is both priest and he's the sacrifice. He is for us all that is needed for propitiation on behalf of our sins. And, and propitiation means the removal of wrath. God's wrath against sin may not be a concept that's agreeable to the modern mind, but it is thoroughly biblical. God hates sin. Amen? God hates sin. He is angered because it affronts his holiness and his justice declares that his wrath against sin must be satisfied. There is a divine wrath, a holy anger against all sin. Romans 1 teaches this. And forgiveness does not mean ignoring this. The propitiation, the turning away of anger... It's not the whole story of Christ's saving work, but it's a genuine part. It's an important part. A truth which, which, again, modern theology, you don't hear a lot about God being angry, do you? You don't hear a lot about God hating sin. There is a divine wrath, a holy anger against all evil. And if sinners are going to be forgiven, something must be done. One aspect of God's forgiveness concerns his anger against sin, and one aspect of, of, of Christ's atoning work for us concerns this divine wrath against it. Both Father and Son, get this, both the Father and the Son see your sins, the individual sins you commit, they see them as serious. They are still a serious thing, and we had better see them as serious also. See, Jesus took it all, the full brunt of God's wrath against sin, square on. And he did this so you could have a relationship with his father. It was your sin that caused this. See, your forgiveness, your forgiveness is no, uh, is no light thing. Jesus removed the wrath that you should have faced 
so the Father could then show you mercy. Do not take your sin lightly. Your sin is not a casual thing. And so adequate is Jesus Christ as God's atoning sacrifice that, that his, uh, the theological word is efficacy. The effectiveness of the work that he did extends not just to the sins that you commit, but it extends to the sins of the whole world. Christ's advocacy is limited to believers. Remember, it's a family thing. Christ only advocates for those who are saved, but, but his propitiation, him turning God's anger and wrath away from sin is, is, is as widely extended as it needs to be. Now, what does that mean? It means that if somebody does not experience the benefit of all that Jesus Christ has done, it's not Jesus' fault. He's done enough. If people are not saved, it's not because Jesus didn't do enough. It's not because he was derelict in his responsibility. If you are not saved, the fault lies squarely at your own feet. Because when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, the Father says, it is enough. My wrath is satisfied. Now all of this, God the Father and God the Son did. They did all of this so you could enjoy fellowship with the Father and so you could have joy and so that you don't commit sins that would mess up that joy and mess up that fellowship. See, walking in the light, there is, there is truth and there is honesty and there is vulnerability there is exposure of sin and there is confession of those sins and yes uh, when you sin you must in 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 your confession you must face not a judge but you do face a disappointed father but you will not listen you will not ever face your father alone he's jesus he stands with you and he stands with you as you confess your sins to the father and jesus says father these sins too are under my blood this child of yours he has confessed them and i have taken them on me and you get to see the face of your heavenly father you get to see the disappointment melt away and he looks upon you with favor and love and acceptance all over again. Some of you have never seen, you've never seen that on the faces of your earthly parents. You've never seen the approval, the acceptance. But you can see it on the face of your God. You can see it on the face of your heavenly father because Jesus stands with you and he advocates for you when you are honest and vulnerable and open with your heavenly father and you agree with him that your sin is egregious and that it hurts the fellowship and it breaks his heart and you confess it to forsake it and, and Jesus is standing right there with you to help you restore the relationship with your father. In Christ, you can never be more loved and accepted as you are at this moment. 
nothing you can do can earn any acceptance. Nothing you, you do can gain any more acceptance. But when you commit a sin, it hurts that relationship. You are still just as loved. You are still just as accepted as Christ is. But your relationship has a fracture. And Jesus advocates for you. He speaks for you so that that fracture can be mended, so relationship can be restored. But you, believer, must confess those sins. You must agree with God that they are heinous and they do not belong in the life of a believer, whatever they are. Remember, John writes these that we sin not, which means we can sin not. So we have the fellowship and we have the joy that God both knows that we need and wants us to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy him. So he's telling us over and over again the things that get in the way so so that when they're out of the way we can enjoy it the way he wants us to. Back at the beginning of the chapter, he, he wants us to have fellowship. He wants us to have joy. Sin messes that up. But it doesn't have to. Let that sink in. It doesn't have to. You don't have to sin. Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we want to thank you deeply for our Savior being our advocate, the one that stands with us, the one that speaks for us. And all this you have done that we can have fellowship with you and that our joy can be full and that we not sin to break your heart or hurt our relationship with you. Father, thank you for all that Jesus has done and what he continues to do. Lord, thank you that, that, that you so desire fellowship with your children. that Jesus continually cleanses us and that upon our confession of the sin, he restores the relationship. Father, work in us that we enjoy the fellowship we have with you, that we value that fellowship and that we work through the power of your Holy Spirit to keep that fellowship where it belongs. Father, thank you for thank you for you. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the cleansing of our confessed sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Keith, would you come?